How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, tales of the Irish diaspora. We all come from somewhere else. Subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. My guest today is Janet Bean. The daughter of Brian and the niece of Brendan, Janet's play Brendan at the Chelsea starred Adrian Dunbar and toured Dublin, Belfast and New York, while her one-woman show Why Shouldn't I Go was delighting audiences up and down the country until Covid struck. I talked to her about her writing and growing up as a Bean, but first I want to know how Brendan at the Chelsea came about. By the way, please note that this interview does contain adult language and the name that we're searching for is Lee Hall. Meanwhile, back at Brendan at the Chelsea... I, because when you're the relative of somebody uh, famous like that, you're often asked, oh, do you know who could do this? Do you know who could do that? And I had been in my house, um, very much stuck in my house because we had a severely autistic son for many, well, I'm getting on for 10 years at that point. And I'd had a couple of theatre people come round and say, oh, could we talk to you about your autistic son? And then they'd maybe invite me to the showing of the wonderful version of Spoonface Steinberg they were doing. And Spoonface Steinberg is a, is a, a, a very nice play about an it's autistic Lee... boy. Guys on the radio. Sorry? It's Lee something, isn't it? Um, it is. It. It's not Lee Miller. It's not Lee Childs, but it's definitely Lee somebody. Lee somebody, um, yes. Billy he's, a great, he's a great writer, and I'm sorry I can't remember his name, but I can't. Uh, we'll, we'll drop so, that in in post. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so when somebody phoned up and said, oh, I've been given your name by Sonia Friedman, who uh, is, the, is a West End producer and the sister of a very, very, very dear friend of mine, Maria Friedman. Um, when they, they phoned up and said, oh, I mean, could you, do you know anybody who could write a version for the stage of uh, Brendan Meehan's New York? And some rage rose up inside me and I just said, yes, I could. And he said, oh, fine. Well, if I drop the book round, can you do me a treatment? So I went to the internet and Googled treatment because I didn't <laughs> know what that was. Um, and I wrote a treatment and he seemed happy with that and uh we went ahead and it was a kind of a it was a very sort of sweet respectful trot through the great marvelous talent of brendan bean but um as my friend paul bradley said there's a character missing here which was the drink and i said oh no i wouldn't want to cause any offense there's enough of that trouble in our family as it is um and the, the, it went through various hands and various people looked at it and um, somebody said, you know, I, I am willing to go ahead with this, but you have got to make it much tougher. And I thought, okay. So I wrote a version which had one scene in the Chelsea Hotel and I took it to him and he said, yeah, you've got to set the whole play in the Chelsea Hotel. And I said, well, no, 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 that could, that's completely impossible. So I'll tell you what, I'll go away for a month and try. So I went away for a month and tried. And of course, he was completely right uh, because it just it 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 made it much easier to stage and it compressed um, the time and the action in a way that was uh, very useful for the drama. When you say about um, the rage that rose up in you, was that being protective of your family's legacy, as it were? No, 
no, I was just sick and tired of other people getting on with their lives. And I was just stuck at home thinking, when do I ever, when do I ever escape? When does this, you know, extraordinarily tough life ever end? I mean, I, I'm writing a novel at the moment and I, I want to talk in the novel in a way that is, you know, palatable to people and I'm not I don't want to bash them around the head with them but to try and explain what it's like being a mother of a very severely disabled child um anyway that's a digression that's a different thing but 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 that that was where the rage came from I just uh I was sick of helping other people have fabulous careers and not have a fabulous career of my own so you know well, let's let's um, start with you. Really, who, who, who better to write this? <laughs> this, this Sorry, this, um, you 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 uh, you you st did you start off as an actress then and then move into writing? Is that is that how your your career went at first? I started off as an actress and then um, because I just got to say our son is is great now. He's he doesn't live with us anymore and he's getting on to the degree that he can with his life. And it's a real success story, but that came out of an awful lot of legal battles. I, I did because I, I was an actress and I acted for many years and then I had children and that became harder anyway. And then our son was diagnosed and it became impossible because really nobody could look after him but me. My husband was um, working away a lot. He's a TV director and nearly every job he got seemed to be in either Africa or America or Shropshire or some somewhere that wasn't you know handy for Stoke Newington anyway so uh, um, and it really kind of boiled down to just me and I had uh, we have another son Rory who is three years younger than my son so I, I have my hands full at home right you are yes it wasn't possible to act it wasn't possible to work outside the, the house so I began to write but you come from a family of writers. Um, I mean, we've mentioned, obviously, um, Brendan and your father, uh, Brian, uh, both of whom uh, wrote in particular for in, in prose and with the stage and, and so forth. And, and looking at, um, uh, looking at your, your, your siblings as well, there's quite a lot of writing in the family. Um, so was, was, was that an easy thing to do or was, or, or was that made more daunting by the fact that there's, there's a, is a family of writers that you come from? It was made more daunting. Mm-hmm because you felt that you were going to get compared. Um, but then in the end, I just thought, uh, you know, and, and it, it, even amiable friends when I started writing said, oh yes, I see you're just cashing in on the family name. Um, and thank God for the family name, because I don't suppose uh, my play would have had, it wasn't easy getting it on, not by any means. It's never easy getting any play on, I don't think, but um, it had a much, much better chance because of that subject matter. Does that mean that people tend to treat you with a certain regard or indeed suspicion with regards to your own work? Uh, yes, I think I think when I wrote Brendan at the Chelsea, there were there, uh, I remember somebody saying because it did it did quote um, Brendan to an extent, and I'll tell you exactly the extent: seven percent. <laughs> <laughs> word for word just so I could uh, refute these <laughs> accusations oh so yeah obviously it's an issue isn't it it's an issue um uh, but uh people did think you know were those were those lines Brendan or were they mine 
And I, that, of course, is a huge compliment because they couldn't tell the difference. So I thought that was rather, uh, rather nice. Um, but I remember when I was a very young, far too young to be out on my own, really. I think I was about 14 and I was in Dublin and uh, I was in Donahue's and it started, you know, I was always going around saying, oh, my uncle's Brendan Veal. And this man just rounded on me and said, it's the likes of you fucking Veans that have given our Irish a reputation that we've got, you know, fuck off back to wherever, you know, um, stuff like that. that. And an awful lot of people saying to me, you know, well, was he a genius or was he just a drunk? as if there was sort of nothing in between these two things. Uh, so it's always been a kind of an issue. And I, because, I think more than anything else, because of dad being a writer and my relationship with my dad, I think I was kind of afraid of, I don't know, stepping on his toes or something like that. I often think I would never have managed to write the play if it hadn't been for the fact that he died. Right. Which is a say, isn't it? But no, I think it's it, 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 it's something that people often find is that it's like, um, yeah. is, is they find themselves looking over their shoulder at their, at, at their parents. And it's only afterwards that you they, find yourself. They gave me a sort of a psychological freedom. Yes. And that, that's, no, that's no insult to their memory. It's just, it's just how, yeah. it, how, how, how it is. Um, were you a precocious teenager then at 14 going around Dublin saying, Look at me. That's what you mean by precocious. <laughs> and the answer is yes, in any case. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I thought I was a little grown up. Uh, it then took me many, many years and a lot of um, psychological support to actually grow up. But uh, yeah. How many siblings do you have? Um, I have two sisters. Uh, and a half sister and a half brother. And you uh, you were raised in London, yes. Yes. And whereabouts? Uh, we, I was born in my grandparents' communist lodging house <laughs> in Kennington Park Road, and we moved from there when I was about six months old to a prefab in um, Hernhill. Uh, we which is beautifully detailed in my sister's story, Stalin on the Mantelpiece, which is part of the anthology of the common people, common people. Um, uh, and then we, when, when that was demolished, we, we, my, my father and mother kept being shown these properties, council properties that um, uh, they didn't think were up to snuff. And my father, being my father, stormed down to the council offices and said, let me see the file. And they reductantly uh, were forced to part with this file, which had slum tenants stamped across the front. So <laughs> as, a, as a result of that interview, we ended up with quite a nice house uh, in um, Crown Point in West Norwood, which I have to say we probably didn't leave in a fantastic condition. And I don't think we probably finished paying the rent before we left either. And then we moved down to a houseboat in Shoreham by Sea. But I would, I would have been about 15 by then, I think. And you say it was, um, you were raised in your, 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 your grandparents' communist 
household what was what was that like was, I was, that, was, that a born bit... there. I was only born there oh right you are but um but you, you, your dad was quite the union activist and so forth I mean was it a politically busy family oh ridiculously mm-hmm. crazy um uh, very interesting if uh, I discovered a kind of a a, a, a long distance I don't know what he'd be some kind of a, a second cousin fifth five removed up in Staffordshire um who um is a furlong and Furlong was the name of my grandmother's first husband. And um, he's, he dug out Brendan's special branch file, which is now, uh, is, is now um, um, a, a released to public record. And he sent me a copy. And there was a letter from my uncle, Sean, Sean Furlong, to Brendan in, uh, I think it was in Mountjoy at the time. Um, talking about, I think talking about the amnesty, talking about the fact that, that Brendan could sign a letter renouncing his IRA activities and then he would be released. And his brother Sean advising him to do that. Um, but there's lots of uh, Sean being followed around the country because he was in the Communist Party. Um, there are letters in there about my father um, being, you know, his union activities and everything. And Interestingly, uh, my, Sean has the same address as this Kennington Park Road address. So I think what my grandparents who were, my grandfather was from Yorkshire and my grandmother was from Lancashire and they were in the Communist Party. And I think that their, their house in Kennington Park Road was renowned as a place that if you were a communist from wherever in the world, you could fetch up and they might provide you with a bedroom. So, uh, uh, so yeah, no, it was it was fantastically political part a uh, family, ridiculous um, from both sides, not just not just the Beans, not what and just the Furlongs, but my 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 mother's family as well. And has that sense of political activism carried on into you? Do you think it's kind of um, no? I'm I've, I'm not politically active. I am a member of the Labour Party. It put me off extreme left-wing politics because the effect on me as a child was a little bit I suppose like um, I always think of it as being what it must be like to be the child of a Jehovah's Witness that you're constantly not coming first I spent an awful lot of my early life looking at the backs of people's knees on a variety of marches up to Trafalgar Square. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I, to, uh, I, I don't, I didn't feel that I benefited very much. And I know really uh, it's kind of sad. I mean, it was another thing in the, in the, um, in the files that I was reading this kind of fervent belief in Russia and what was going on in Russia and the, and the heartbreak when they discovered that actually it wasn't sort of anti-communist propaganda, it was true. Things were not great over there. Um, uh, and, that, and they came out of that. My father was, I think he was expelled from the Communist Party, although he did go all over the world as a communist official. Um, and I think when he came back, he kind of, talked about what he'd seen which really had kind of shocked him as a communist official they were staying in all the best hotels and um 
people who were walking around the streets with no shoes on and uh, I think he was he was really shocked and horrified and I don't think the, the British Communist Party wanted to hear that particularly. Um, so he was expelled from that. Wherever he went, he, he caused sort of ferment and, <laughs> you know, he was, he, he was a great thinker and he was a great speaker and he was a great rabble rouser. And, and political organisations are like any other organisation. Some people want to be top dog. And my father had a, a, a kind of a natural right to be top dog, but I don't think that was what people particularly wanted you're listening to the plastic podcasts tales of the irish diaspora we all come from somewhere else subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com i asked my guest janet bean what effects her unconventional childhood had on her at the time we were a couple i have to explain that my my i have my third sister who's 10 years younger than me, so she wasn't around when I was a little girl. Um, uh, we were a couple of freaks. You know, if, if people said to us in the playground, you're gonna vote Labour or Conservative, we'd say, you know, what, what six, six year olds don't have votes, do they? But these are the conversations that were had. Um, we'd say, no, we're gonna vote Conservative, we're gonna vote uh, Communist. And if they said, are you a Catholic or a Protestant, we'd say, we're atheists and uh, we were bullied, you know, remorselessly, um, unsurprisingly. I had two little friends, I won't name them now, but we, they formed a club with me in my coal shed and then they threw me out of my club, even though it was held in my coal shed. Never really got over that. But no, I mean, I think, I think also that kind of feeling of not knowing where you belong because you're, you're not Irish enough to be Irish in Ireland and you're not English enough to be English in England. And of course, there were, there were lots of, um, of anti-IRA sentiment around at the time, lots of, lots of IRA activity. And so it was, a hard, it was hard to be part of the Irish community. That's one of the things that the, 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 the podcast itself tends to focus in on, which is this notion, which is why it's called the Plastic Podcasts, um, which is this notion that um, of, of authenticity, of that, of, that, of that sense that you're not considered authentically English and not considered authentically Irish. And it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike. Um, over, the course of, over the course of life, how, 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 how have, you, have you found it... How, how have you found that that, that, that sense or, or has authenticity been something that you find in other ways? Um, I mean, it was, it was kind of um, pointed up by the fact that I was trying to have an acting career because I would get seen for lots of Irish parts and then they would be kind of, oh, you're not Irish but um, conversely I would not get seen for English parts because they thought I was Irish. Uh, I remember once going for an advert um, uh, there's a wonderful casting lady called Ros Hubbard who is Irish herself and as I was going in for this advert she just went Irish like that. I thought oh, okay okay so I went in did my Irish accent it was for a, a, a margarine called Ballyclaw Light and um, 
so I, I got the I got the gig for Ballyclaw Light and I went over to uh, but I had no idea that I was supposed to keep up this fiction throughout. So uh, I was in the hotel in Dublin with the producer, with a lovely guy called Paul Bradley, who is now a great friend. He's been a very great friend since that time. He's an actor, wonderful actor. And uh, <clears throat> we were chatting away. And the producer said, oh, it's a funny thing. When you're in London, you all sound very fucking Irish. And now you're in Dublin, you all sound very fucking English. <laughs> so my advertisement for Ballyclaw Light ended up being an English woman thinking it was marvellous on scones. So. <clears throat> oh, another thing I remember, I remember I was working up in the... Um, Lyric in Belfast when I was in my in my twenties, and I got an audition at the Abbey, and Tomas McConnor was the uh, director at the Abbey at the time, and I did my audition piece, and he said, uh, "What part of Ireland are you from?" And I said, I "I'm not. I'm from London." And he said, "Oh well, we would never employ you before one of our own people." I was too proud to say, look, hang on a minute, <laughs> Brendan Bean sleeps, which probably would have helped. So I just slunk away. When you were writing um, Brendan at the Chelsea, I was reading a review of it and, uh, and uh, when it was in New York and uh, somebody said there was uh, only one mention of the um, IRA activity. And so on. there's a deliberate decision on your part to, to keep that to one side or did it just not fit in with the story you were trying to tell? Um, what, one of the most important things that happened to my play was that I, uh, I got a workshop, three-day workshop at the National Theatre and Adrian Dunbar was cast as Brendan in the work and then went on, came round to my house the following day with a cake and said, uh, I want to do your play. And we developed the play um, over the next couple of years and, put it, and, and, and we were the people that put it on at the Riverside in, in Hammersmith. Uh, along with Rosalind Scanlon, and um, he didn't feel that. And then this is awful because I'm like killing this kind of really sort of central myth about Brendan Bean, but he didn't feel that the IRA activities really amounted to much. And when you look at the evidence, he wasn't he wasn't a classic IRA man. In fact, he was thrown out of the IRA. When he was a young man, I think he was thrown out twice. And I, when he went to uh, Liverpool to um, set the bomb that resulted in him being imprisoned, he was caught. He was caught straight away, you know. So uh, he, he wasn't any kind of like an expert at this sort of thing. Just to have blown himself up, he he wasn't going on IRA orders. I think he was going in order to, to me, this is just a personal opinion, he, he was going in order to show the IRA blokes who'd thrown him out that he was a proper IRA bloke and they shouldn't have thrown him out. But he got thrown out for messing around because they didn't, they didn't like messing around. They were a proper paramilitary organisation and they wanted people to be disciplined and, uh, you know, uh, and he wasn't. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he was impossible to discipline. And it was impossible for him to discipline himself. So, um, so we didn't put it in. Because I, it, to, to me, 
to, to me, it's a play more than anything else. It's a plot as a play about fame and the effects of fame on somebody who, for some reason, craved it in an unhealthy way and uh, and about alcohol it's about alcohol was this your first play uh yes and when you were when you were when you were writing it i mean it's like did it start off as one thing and become another uh, I mean, oh yes very what, much so, so yeah. when you when you when you were starting it do you recall what you thought you were going to be writing about I, well, of course, at first I was trying to write an adaptation of Brendan Bean's New York, which proved completely and utterly impossible. So I thought I would incorporate, um, I would incorporate some some of the nice stories out of that, and then I, uh, would I would use some of the lovely he's wrote a lovely collection of short stories and newspaper articles, and I thought I'd do some of the the, the bits out of that. So it was somebody described it as an evening of paddy whackery, which I think. Would be fair enough I think that's what it was but uh yes so very much so very much so I didn't want at all to I mean uh, there's been so much kind of bad feeling between those brothers oh, you know over political matters and I think more than anything else over their you know, all desire to be the one the one that Kathleen thought the sun sh shone out of um uh I did, really didn't want to delve into all of that. And I spent an awful lot of the time when I was writing that book crying, which is funny looking back, but I, I, because there was so much kind of pain in that family. And I guess it was, it was really the, you know, the, the dramatist instinct, it was the pain that I was trying to get, you know. So my pain, their pain, any bloody pain. I was going to ask if there was an element of exorcism for you as well. Yes, very much so, very much so. Yeah, writing is fabulous for that. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. This is the section where I ask one of my guests to hoist onto the plastic pedestal a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance. This week, Paddy O'Keefe, talks about George Bernard Shaw. For practical reasons, when I, when I was trained as an actor and, uh, I, and having got into it through active, uh, being uh, active in the peace movement, I decided what I wanted to do really, I didn't want to do anything that wasn't uh, either um, uh, Irish or political. Uh, and after a while it dawned on me that of course Shaw would be both Irish and political. I also felt that I knew something about him having been brought up in Dublin one feels that, you know, you, you feel that you know the spirit of people like Shaw and uh, uh, Singh and uh, uh, O'Casey and uh, Beckett and Oscar Wilde and they're, that, they're, that they're around all the time. But what, what drew me to Shaw was um, his wit and his politics particularly, not particularly his work, uh, because I wasn't all that familiar with, with many of his, um, his plays to begin with. But uh, what I felt and what I discovered in, in doing my research, that he had the most, uh, most extraordinary childhood. Uh, I mean, he lived the first 20 years in Dublin. And uh, he, um, it was amazing that he managed to preserve his sanity, because insanity and alcoholism were 
predominant on both sides of his family, both his mother's and his father's side. Um, and the fact that he triumphed over those and uh, remained and uh, continued to be, as I think, optimistic about, about the future and about life in general, um, that fascinated me. I mean, I can't compare my, my um, um, uh, sort of family experience to Shaw's family experience, but the fact that that somehow drove him um, fascinated me. I loved his wit because uh, he is one of the cleverest uh, which they say, no, if it isn't Shakespeare, it's bound to be either Oscar Wilde or Bernard Shaw, and it often is Bernard Shaw, and some of them, some of them have been, some of the, the, uh, uh, the, the one about, uh, about the, uh, the poet who was complaining about not having uh, any much recognition, he said, complaining to Shaw, it's also been told about uh, Oscar Wilde, but complaining to Shaw, he said, oh, you know, he said, he said it's, it's as if there's a conspiracy of silence about my work. And Shaw, getting fed up with hearing him say this all the time, advised him, I think what you should do is join conspiracy. <laughs> which would, which would satisfy, satisfy Shaw that he could have, wouldn't have to keep listening to him complaining. But that um, is also told about um, Oscar Wilde. But the fact that uh, the Shaw's wit uh, is uh, so great. Also, I find his, his humanity, his, his, just, his decency, I mean, he was absolutely ahead of his time when it came to um, uh, the acknowledgement of um, um, homosexuals, for instance. He was absolutely ahead of his time there. He was one of the very few uh, defenders of, um, of Oscar Wilde. And in fact, when Oscar Wilde was, as we could say, disgraced, and his name wasn't mentioned in polite society, Joe, and then as a drama critic, continued to refer to him in his drama criticism, he would often say things like, ah, but in the hands of an Oscar Wilde, we would have had something much better here. So he kept mentioning and comparing uh, unfavorably the current crop of uh, playwrights and dramatists uh, to, um, to the, the gold standard of uh, Oscar Wilde while he, was, while he was in prison and while he was in disgrace, which I thought was uh, you know, good for him, good for you. <laughs> I like that. I like the fact that he would Take up causes, um, um, regardless of uh, the, the possibility of success. His, he, he was he was interested in the rightness of a cause rather than its um, rather than its likely outcome. You know, he wasn't one for uh, for triangulation or for going the middle way or the third way. He was he was sure about what he what he believed and uh, would follow through on it. And that's pretty admirable. Paddy O'Keefe there. And if you want to hear more of my interview with Paddy, why not check it out on www.plasticpodcasts.com. Now back to Janet Bean, And I ask, after the success of Brian at the Chelsea, what was her next step as a writer? Well, my next step as a writer was to get a terrible dose of, I think what they call second album syndrome. And I just kept starting things and not being able to finish them and just being really kind of, I don't know, just, I don't know, just sort of sheepish about it, really. Um, so I didn't really get, I got an awful lot of things started, but I didn't, really didn't get much finished. Didn't get anything finished, to be honest. <laughs> Until, uh, well, I had written a play about when I lived in, Walthamstow, when when 
Finn, our, our first child, was very young. We lived next door to this uh, Irish couple. And the woman, when you met her in the street, she was very, very, she could barely speak. She was such a bad stammer. And then she'd shut her front door and I would hear her getting louder and louder and louder and very uncomplimentary about all sorts of things. And one of the things she was uncomplimentary about was me. You'd hear her shouting and oh, she thinks she's so fucking Englishy, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I wrote a play about this and the play that I wrote um, had me in it. And I was, I was the sympathetic, hard done by one in the play. And people would read the play and they'd all say, oh, I like the woman next door, but they never liked me. So <laughs> in the end, I thought, well, I'll extract this woman that everybody likes. And I wrote a monologue about her. And through one of the, I'm very involved in the, the, the word fest down here. And one of the word fest things we were doing was a kind of a play reading session, um, uh, sort of midday on market days in Sean by Sea, which is very well attended and very well loved. And I, I read this monologue and I got my very, very old dear friend, Jess, who I've been in a feminist theatre company with called Blaise Earth Mallard many years before. I said, do you want to, she was directing then, I said, do you want to come down and have a listen? And she came down and she had a listen and she said, yeah, I think, you know, if we could, it, it, we could make something of that. So I wrote another character um, and we put that on in the Camden Fringe and people really liked that. This is in 2016. Right. People really like that. And um, uh, so we thought, well, should we get a, try and get a bit of Arts Council money? So we got a bit of Arts Council money and we got the necessary crowdfunding to match it. Um, and I must say, people were just amazing the way they stumped up for that lesson. And um, we got the Arts Council money and we said, another little thing in the WordFest in 2019, which is now called Why Shouldn't I Go, which is three female characters and all Irish, all ending up in England for different reasons. And we did it at the WordFest and people loved it. And we did it at the Camden Irish Centre and people really loved it. And we did it at Lewisham Irish Centre and they just adored it. And we would have been doing it in the... Brighton Fringe in the May that has just gone, but of course, you know, the rest is history, as they say. The the three characters. Uh, so one of them was was based upon your your next door neighbour in Walthamstow, yes. Yes. And yes. Uh, and and the other two characters. The other two characters. One of them was a lady um, who I, I taught um, creative writing at Hammersmith Irish Centre for a while. And she was one of the students there. Um, and really, it's the, it's the story that she told me, which is, I, find, I tried very hard to find her, to say, was it all right to do this? But I have to say, I managed to find her. But her story was so astonishing. She just ran into the class one night with her hair, sort of her eyes blazing and her hair sticking out and said, I've, got to, I've, done, I've written something, I've written something, I've got to read it to you. And she told us this story, which was a true story, which was, and the way she told it, it's like a lot of people have had very, very traumatic events in their life. The way she told it was 
she she got a very writerly style and it was terribly polite and very nicely put but the facts in the story were jaw-droppingly shocking um and uh so i wrote that which wasn't very hard to write because she was you know the character was kind of given to me by this woman and the third one completely invented <laughs> The third one is the Northern Irish Protestant because I wanted in a Northern Irish uh, character and I wanted to say something about the evangelical church because to me it is one of the great, great evils extant on the earth today. You know, they are propping up Donald Trump. They are, they are peddling stuff to me which is just I mean I'm not all of them and I, I'm no, no, no expert I'm no expert um, I just I have a friend who was a Church of England vicar and his sister said to me one day she said they're a nasty bunch and I thought well you should know so anyway I slightly gone after him in this story so but uh, but the wonderful thing is when you make things up and you you put the show on and people come up to you and say yeah that happened to me and you think oh right oh good okay so i i may have made it up but it's it's actually something that is true in life so and were all three characters um or all three stories engaged with religion yes and why was that because i think the the, the church has done terrible it's done amazing amazing good and i'm sure at the moment there's all sorts of churches doing fabulous stuff for all sorts of people but it's also done incredible amounts of harm and um especially to women in Ireland mm -hmm. and, and it's not just it's not just a women in Ireland now is it and I'm not it's not just I don't know it, 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 it's not just sort of um oh, it's fundamentalism in all its forms it's just hacking away at all the stuff women have clawed their way out of over well you know centuries now and they're just being tucked back in under this pile of patriarchal uh, don't like it and do it is, is that something that you feel about all kinds of fundamentalism so i say whether it's political or religious or is it is it specifically religious that that that, that you consider has been more endemic fundamentalism generally is not a not, not a sensible thing is it i don't think because uh, everything is a little bit a little bit gray a little bit this a little bit that you know what i mean and that and i think this is the problem with uh, many aspects of life but especially of politics is that people because it's this competition basically isn't it and they have to win they will instead of doing even think even some of them some of them might even be capable of having a sensible thought but they won't act on the sensible thought they'll act on the the thing that's going to win and uh, the simple message you know what was it about brexit uh, get brexit done taking back control was followed by get it done yes it's, it's three is get it, just take it down to three words Exactly, exactly. Can't, can't, can't have the four words. Yeah, give, give people a mantra. Um, and yet you come from, a, 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 going back to this, you come from a, 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 a very sort of like a 
of fundamentalist background to a certain extent with your um, with, with your parents being heavily involved with the communist party and so on yes Did well that... there's nothing like a background for turning you the other way is there <laughs> yeah no no exactly no, I mean, but exactly, exactly. These people spent years and years and years of their lives going, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. I'm going to stand on the corner of the street and I'm going to sell this daily worker to 10 people, whether they want it or not. And I'm going to spend years that I could have been at university or I could have been making some money. I could have been having nice holidays. I could have been paying a little bit more attention to my children. I'm going to plow them all into this like one set of beliefs because they must be true. I had a friend, um, he's sort of, I won't mention him, but he, he was a member of Militant and I remember, you know, having grown up with this, sitting in a room with him in my 20s and, and listening to him, the absolute positivity with which he came out with this long string of stuff about, you know, the way the world is apparently organised and just thinking, oh my not again <laughs> he was he was he when we got married um he bought us the entire uh, communist manifesto and uh, what's that thing you give at the end of the bible the apocrypha <laughs> the oh, right. communist, yes the whole thing sat in our basement rotting for 10 years do you envy that certainty no i don't i don't i think it's stupid I'm, I, I, actually, I actually like the fact that life is so random, that the, 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 the only thing, the only logic there is, is the natural logic, you know, that we all seem very, well, not we, not me at all, but um, people are so happy to ignore, they're so happy to burn down bloody Amazon rainforest when, you know, this is going to lead to terrible, it has led and is leading Hurricane Hannah. You know, this is all part of the same thing. People seem terribly happy to ignore that logic that's staring them in their face and they seem to want to replace it with a million and one we all, we all know, don't we? We all know that fundamentally we need each other. We should be looking after each other. We're all one big, miserable family. And <laughs> we're constantly being, I mean, the biggest, the biggest orthodoxy of them all is uh, communism, is capitalism, isn't it? And, and nobody seems able to let go of this notion that it has to be growth. <sighs> you know, that the, the rich have to get rich and... I mean, it sickens me when I think of the the people that are making a complete and utter killing out of this uh, pandemic. It's not nice, is it? Do you think that your your perspective as um, and we're going back to the, the basically as a member of the RFD diaspora, somebody who's who's, who's uh, you, in your own words, it's like a grown up a freak. Do you think that gives you a sense of uh, a perspective, a sense of the nuances that perhaps might evade others? I don't see how it could evade others because actually I think that we are all, I've come to believe that we are all, we're all, we're all seeking for some certainty in the middle, that, uh, that some middle ground that probably doesn't exist. You know, my neighbours who, who came from uh, Southwick to Shoreham, which is not a, a 
a long distance. I expect at some point they felt that they didn't really belong and uh, threatened by this and threatened by that. And I, I think I think pe people don't want nuance, do they? I like nuance. I like it very much. I think, I think uh, it's a writerly tool, isn't it? But I think people, whether they're whether they're Irish, English, half Irish, half Hungarian, whoever they are, mm -hmm. they like to live their life with less nuance, really, less stuff that they have to think about, figure out. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. I ask Janet Bean about her next projects for the stage. It's about my, my grandmother, Kathleen. So uh, I have to... I used to do a wonderful imitation of Kathleen. It's, it's lovely kind of, you know, often today. Oh, darling, Half a cup of tea, I don't know, but uh, I don't think anybody wants an hour of that. So we'll <laughs> <laughs> have to find something a little less caricature. Now, your your father wrote twice about her, didn't he? Because there's the novel Kathleen, and then there was Mother of All the Beans. Endlessly about her, endlessly. Um, how do you feel about going back to the, the, this particular well? Oh, um. Kind of, uh, kind of trepidatious, but I don't, I, 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 you know, I, I want to write something about identity. I want it's very much what you know, what you're so interested in that, that, uh, how we, how we find out who we are, how we decide who we are, and what what is passed down to us from before, and uh, I suppose there's another aspect of it is that. She's, she was like me. She was a woman who wanted her own glorious career and had to sit by. That's how I feel about Kathleen, is that, is that she, was, had, she had such... She was so capable, so tough, and so full of talent. And uh, because of poverty and because of being a woman and because of having you no know, contraception and because of having these really kind of you know this handful of scallywags to you know contend with and I include her husband in that description um, all she got was she got sort of reflected glory a little bit of limelight here and there you know and uh, and I sort of, I feel that energy coming off her and I wanted to do something, I suppose, using my experience of feeling that energy to talk about, you know, how, how, the, you know, that history is full of women who could have done so much and just didn't get to do it. But the wonderful thing about Kathleen was she never let anything get her down, put her off, make her gloomy, make her pessimistic. She, in her 90s, in her um, uh, old people's home, 
at Sybil Hill. She was as optimistic and as forward-looking as you know she had ever been. And I, I just, I remember thinking how wonderfully selfish she was <laughs> and how, what a role model that was. A woman who wasn't just going to go, oh, my lovely grandchildren, oh, my son's doing this, my son's doing that. Fuck them. It's about me. And I just thought that was marvellous. Do you think you reflect that as well? Is there a part of you that goes, says, F them? Um, there is. I mean, I, I, I struggle to access it because um, it is hard to feel wanted as a woman in her 60s as an actress or as a writer you know uh, there's an awful lot of people that don't want you mm. but i just think i can't let them stop me from doing what i want to do i have to just ignore that i, I think i think it's a very odd thing isn't it that everybody wants um you know and it all goes back to economics, doesn't it? But how the, uh, if you're a publisher, you want a young writer. Well, I suppose that makes sense because it can look better on the back of the book jacket and um, uh, they've all got to have this media presence and you might get a string of books out of them. You might only get one book out of me. I've lived a long and fascinating life and I have a great deal more to say than a lot of young people. So you know and uh and so i'm very pleased to be to be writing plays and creating work that are for women in their 60s because uh i think we are interesting do you think that um the, the irish part of your identity has has helped has shaped you as a, as a, as a writer or as a performer i think so you know, it's a, it's a bit like singing. Um, it, it's uh, it's part of the Irish gift, in a way, isn't it? To sing, to be good at words, you know. And it it comes about because we sing a lot and we talk a lot, you know. Um, it must be much harder to come at writing from a kind of a, a clipped quiet respectable family than from one where they kind of uh, what was it that kenneth tynan said about brendan's writing take take uh it takes language out on a spree which i thought was a wonderful wonderful phrase and the irish do that all the time everything that falls from their mouths is like a to me it's like a beautiful construction of marvelousness and uh I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the Irish language, doesn't it? You know, and uh, the way things are constructed. It's got, I love Ireland. Uh, you know, if, if, if it was possible for me to live there, I would, but uh, the weather's much better here, I must say. Um, uh, but it's a magic place to me. Maybe that's the reason why I shouldn't live there because I don't want it to not not be magic. I wanted to, to stay magic. And um, just, uh, the, uh, the, uh, we've got friends with a 
house on the Bearer Peninsula and to go to the pub in Ardgroom and just sit there and listen to that accent and listen to those people talking. It doesn't get any better than that. Are you, are you one who likes to listen? Yes. I've often been forced to listen. <laughs> I'm what you call a good, a good listener, but I, I think it's fascinating. I, I've never come across anybody who wasn't, you know, interesting, didn't have an interesting story to tell or an interesting attitude, you know, or, you know, even if people are appalling, they're still interesting. And what does being a member of the diaspora, what's that meant to you? It's, it's been fantastically enriching. And I'm also, I'm married to a, a Northern Irish Protestant. Yes. So I have these sort of whole, these three entire, well, four, if you think about um, the Yorkshire lot and the, uh, the Manchester lot, and the Dublin lot and the Northern Irish lot, you know, I, that's, this is a very rich heritage. You know, it's something to be pleased about, isn't it? What plans for after the, uh, after lockdown ends and so on? Um, you said, you mentioned Manchester as a possibility for, um, for uh, why shouldn't I go? Well, first of all, we'll do it in the Brighton Fringe in May. I say we will. Who knows? This is just the most most peculiar set of circumstances, aren't they? Um, and and once I've done that, I will start looking into doing it. There's a wonderful Irish Heritage Centre up there that uh, want it, and there's a lovely little art centre called the Birch up there that wants it. And um, uh, it's uh, maybe do a little tour of um, Liverpool, Blackpool, places like that. A lot of Irish people up there, and. Uh, but we are working, we're hoping that the Wordfest is going to take place this October, Shoreham Wordfest, in some form. And so I am planning to do a scratch production of the Kathleen, I'm going to call it Kathleen and me, I think, um, show for that, see how that goes. I, I, I was hoping to sing in it, but singing is singing is a complete no-no at the moment isn't it so our choir was planning to go and sing in a wood on saturday and even that we, we cried <laughs> oh, singing really? in a wood. too risky <laughs> yeah. perhaps you could mime well i'll have to mime won't i <laughs> i just i could I, kathleen kathleen made a um an lp when she was in her 90s called all, when all the world is young and uh I could mind to that, couldn't I? That'd be a laugh. No, I don't think so. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I haven't said about Kathleen. Her brother, of course, wrote the lyrics to the Irish national anthem. Yes, I was going to. I was going to mention that. So it's it's um, that's quite something, isn't it? It is something. It's a marvelous something, and we all all the um, it's the Carneys, of course, not the Beans, um, because Christian name was uh, Kathleen Carney. And all the Carnies were asked in uh, 2016, which of course was the um, centenary of the Irish the Rising. We were all called to the Oros on Uktaran, and we all met the the, the uh, president and his wife, and had a lovely 
E and lovely, lovely sort of meet and it showed round the place. And on the way out, I was waiting for my taxi and uh, it was over my lovely auntie Paula, Paula Furlong. And uh, there was a glass case with a big book in it and the book was signed, uh, Elizabeth R. And I said, oh, look. And she said, not my queen. And I thought, yes. <laughs> How marvellous to live in a republic. Oh, just, yes. And I just thought the whole thing was fantastically... To live somewhere where you don't have that aristocracy, you don't have that ruling class, that's really something. I'm going to just wrap up with a couple of final questions. Do you, do you think writing is an act of optimism? Uh, Yes, it's an act of crazy optimism because the likelihood of never getting published or seen is terribly remote. But it's, all, it's more than anything, it's an act of solace, isn't it? It's a, it's a, and it, to me, it's a kind of a necessity. I have things I need to get down on paper and that's what makes me do it. What happens to it afterwards? I have to deal with it afterwards, don't I? Nothing to talk about until the thing is actually done. You decide to describe yourself as a seaside gardener. Oh yes, well I am. How's that I going? Am. What easy I can tell you. Um, uh, uh, lots of things don't want to grow out there, but I keep persistently trying to make them. Oh, there, there's a metaphor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have a front garden and a back garden. The front garden um, is too close to the sea to really be reliably, you know, it's blowing a gale now and, you know, a couple of times in winter, it just flattens everything. But the back garden is far enough away, growing my own vegetables. I grow them. Nobody seems to want to eat them. <laughs> so I keep growing them. I get great satisfaction from that. Well, keep on growing them and keep on writing. I will. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Janet Bean. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com or indeed subscribe to www.plasticpodcasts.com. Music has been by Jack Devaney. The Plastic Podcasts has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England.